Welcome back. Happy April 7th, 2021. Former Major League Baseball Commissioner Faye Vincent writes in the Wall Street Journal today, quote, The Midsummer All-Star Game is an exhibition that benefits only the city where it's played. It was reported Tuesday morning that Denver will be the new host. The players will get paid no matter where the game takes place. MLB will get the same television revenue. The only people hurt by the current commissioner, Rob Manfred's decision to leave Atlanta will be Atlanta stadium workers and local vendors. The talk shows and editorial pages are full of questions. What is the basis for acting so forcefully against Georgia? If Georgia is racist, how can baseball talk of doing business with China? Mr. Manfred failed to spell out specific criticisms of Georgia's voting law. Now he's put himself in the awkward position of having to defend Colorado's voting laws. During my time as commissioner, I learned that the American people view baseball as a public trust. They want the game to stand for the best and noblest of our national virtues. They see baseball as the repository of their dreams, even as they root for their favorite teams. They don't want and won't accept anything that separates them from the game's history and leadership. Major League Baseball can't become a weapon in the culture wars, a hostage for one political party or ideology. It can't be only for the rich or the poor, nor can it only be for one race as it was until 1947. Baseball must always stand above politics and its dark elements of corruption, greed, and sordid selfishness. It can't go wrong by standing for national greatness. The situation calls to mind the 2006 Duke lacrosse case, when many erred by leaping to a conclusion based on assumptions rather than carefully considering facts. I've done the same thing to my regret. Much rides on Commissioner Manfred's shoulders, so he must be prudent. Perhaps he now sees how complicated these issues can become. Close quote. Ding, ding, ding. Mr. Vincent stumbled right on it. When he wrote, quote, Major League Baseball can't go wrong by standing for national greatness, close quote, he wrote the cultural history of the last five years. Sports, professional athletics, typically a place where we as Americans stand for national greatness more prominently than anywhere else. We sing for it, too. It's called the National Anthem, or Star Spangled Banner, and that representation of pride in this country is exactly what the elites and professional sports have been taking away from us and from this country at the beginning of those sports games. Colin Kaepernick started this movement, but it's moved well beyond him in football, and it's, of course, centered on issues of race because the most racially integrated and least racist country in the world is the USA, and I challenge anyone to prove me wrong about that. We cannot take, because of this, we cannot take national pride in our country because of racism. This is so circular. The only way to overcome its illogic is to deny the premise that the United States is great to begin with. Andrew Cuomo said the quiet part out loud last year when he said the United States was never really that great. Hillary Clinton had spoken of the same, so too the Obamas. And probably 98% of liberal arts professors and 80% of high school social studies and English and history teachers believe and teach this as well. So do the major news organizations. 
The catalyst for all this was an accusation against police, cops, and their racist beliefs, attitudes, and institutions. Funny thing nobody ever seemed to connect, though. The national anthem, if it pays tribute to any institution, it's not the police. It's not the cops. It's the U.S. military. And funny thing nobody ever seems to connect. The U.S. military may be the most integrated and least racist institution in the world. It led integration efforts in the United States under Harry Truman and is today just a little below 50% people of color. The United States itself is about 25% people of color. In other words, the United States military does a better job of integration and can boast a higher percentage of minorities than the United States as a whole. So the tribute song to that institution, the U.S. military, the national anthem, is the locus of protest by those who push racist American narratives? It's a double irony here, a double irony. The most integrated and least racist country in the world causes the most ire and rioting from those protesting racism. And one of their civil targets for their protest and riot is against a song whose tributing institution is the least racist and most integrated institution in the United States, the military. In other words, the Wokies not only have the wrong defendant in the wrong court, they have all this wrong as they speech, march, and riot for justice and equality. The more he spoke of his honor, the faster we counted our spoons, Emerson said. But let's get after this a bit more, shall we? Because there's a problem with sports in American culture and all this racialism being thrown around here. Aside from the fact that I'm not sure there's a single institution that has enwealthened and enriched more persons of color than professional athletics in America, it has done so by doing the one thing most conservatives agree on and most leftists disagree on when it comes to overcoming racism. Professional athletics truly has disregarded color in hiring and hiring only based on, exclusively based on, talent. The NFL can thus be nearly 70% African American in a country of 13% African African Americans without anyone blinking an eye. The Major League Baseball is well over 80% persons of color. The NBA is 75% black. Again, nobody bats an eye or thinks to make an issue here. Why? Two reasons. To quote Professor, Professor David Gelertner in America, we take the NFL seriously in America. We take other things that we should take seriously as unseriously as possible. We play games with the social experimentation of our soldiers in the military and play games with the social experimentation of empowering our youth to make permanent decisions about their gender. We put underqualified people in schools and workplaces because we want to see racial quotas met, thus proving we are not serious about schools and those workplaces and industries and effort and work and accomplishment and excellence. But we would never dream of doing that in the NFL, MLB, or NBA, because in America, we take sports seriously. Or do we? Once upon a time, sports was politics-free and about fairness and rules. 
and competition. And may the best man or best woman or best team win. William Bennett wrote that no matter what else it is, sports has always been an arena in which children can grow in light of unambiguous, tangible, universal standards and measures. With proper supervision and coaching, the only limits are those of an individual's abilities and the abilities of the best players of the game. Sports is still an activity in which excellence can be seen and reached for and approximated each day. Close quote. Sports can be. They were. That's what Faye Vincent was getting at. But now taking a child to a professional athletics or sports game is likely to solicit as the first question from the child, not, hey, Dad, what is that third ring on the court for? Or why are there more referees for this game than the basketball game we watched? Instead of questions like that, it's just as or more likely that the child's first questions to adults taking them to professional sports games these days will be along the lines of, Dad, why do I stand for the national anthem at school, but these guys kneel on their knees? When they ask that question, will society, will parents have a good answer? Will children grow in light of ambiguous, intangible, and non-universal measures of relativism? Will their heroes teach them to hate this country that is made of their heroes? Well, heroes and multimillionaire heroes at that. Or will you stop taking them to those sports games? If I may, to the other major cultural debate, a bit more than nascent now, but not older than 10 years ago, children and transgenderism and conservatism. Sometimes it seems the people who need our discussions about conservatism, what it is and what it means, people who need those discussions, it seems most, are some of our soy de conservative elected officials. Did you see Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson on Tucker Carlson last night? The governor vetoed a bill, Republican governor vetoed a bill, that would have prevented physicians from providing what's called gender-affirming health care to transgender minors, including hormones, puberty blockers, and transition-related surgeries, as ABC reports it. Hutchinson told Tucker it was time to get government out of personal decisions, and that's what conservatism should mean. He said we need to broaden the party and get back to principle. That's a direct quote. He said we need to broaden the party and get back to principle. Cart horse, Governor. Nearly by definition, you cannot hew strongly to a principle and broaden the membership of that group, not without laying predicative work you seem unable to provide. I also must report how pressured it is, how precious it is to me for people of the liberal left, to which I would now add Governor Hutchinson here, people of the liberal left only wanting government involvement in what they call personal and private decisions or arenas when it comes to regulations, when it suits their demand and desire, and then invoke libertarian principle and theory when it comes to using the government to put controls and guardrails around what they brought the government into in the first place. In other words, they disregard the wholesale problem and give us all a retail problem. Put government in here 
say, abortion. Now that it's there, fight like hell any and all guardrails or regulations as government interference and find your inner libertarian all of a sudden. Once you've put the government there, now it's hands off. Never mind that, as Thomas Jefferson put it, to compel a man to furnish contributions for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical. What Hutchinson misunderstands is everything. I fear in our party he is not alone. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 602508 is the number. Bill, welcome back to the producer's uh, chair, the production studio. Hope you had a good day off. Did you do anything productive with it? I watched Jaws a second time. Oh, is it only your second time? I think a second time, and I watched Jaws a second time. Any new lines you didn't recall that popped out as fun? Uh, Quint's soliloquy. You knew that even though. more. You knew that. It just stirred you even more. When I was younger, I kind of dismissed it like, ah, get back to the action. But we've like, played it so many times here that you clearly had knowledge, a forethought. That helped, too. You're talking about, um, of course, the, um, the soliloquy about the USS Indianapolis by Robert Shaw, which I believe he had, writ- he had said mostly, he, he had given that, that – uh, that soliloquy about being on the Indianapolis mostly ad-libbed, and it's pretty accurate. It's as, it's it's if it's off by a number or two, it might be because he gives out a few numbers, but it's mostly an accurate story. And uh, it's a it's a heck of a why is that movie so good, Bill? Holds your attention the whole time. Yeah, slow build, tension, but, but with technology, you know, cinematography technology. That is so far removed from how how uh, how graphic you could get today. It was one of the most graphic at the time, and I remember I was babysitting my nephew last summer for a week. I he was about eight, I guess, and I wanted to show it to him, and I had to call his mom to ask if it was okay because I thought, huh. and she laughed. She said the kinds of stuff, you know, these kids watch this, and, and it bored him. It did not hold his interest. But I do maintain, and if someone wants to argue with me, or it's not really even an argument, if someone wants to uh, give me a better example or an additional example, I maintain that um, very few movies can change a culture. I know a lot of people think they can, and a lot of people think they can change a, a, a political event or moment or vote. Um, and I'm, I'm highly skeptical of it. I'm highly skeptical of it, partly because of self-selection. Only people who tend to watch those things are people previously with made-up minds who have made their minds up previously. But what I, what, I have, um, what I have found is that there are very few movies that actually do change a culture, and Jaws is one of them. I don't, I don't think anyone ever looked at an ocean the same way again after seeing Jaws. I don't think anyone goes to their summer vacation, whatever, body of water, and goes in without some scene from that movie just flashing by real quick. I don't know. 
It just I, I think I'm right about that. I'll say well think about the vocabulary that movies like I don't know, Star Wars gave us. Okay, but did it change our culture in any way? Not really. Not really. It didn't change thoughts or habits, I don't think. Did any movie other than Jaws do that? I don't know. Let me know. I'd be curious to know if you think that um, one has. I'm fascinated by the fact that I can only think of one. I can really only think of one. All right. In my monologue, I was uh, talking about affirmative action and race-based preferences um, in certain institutions but not others. So, you know, you have it in hiring decisions in most corporations. You have it in education. You don't have it in professional athletics. And you don't have it in professional athletics because you know it would be silly if we tried to match the NBA or any professional athletic team uh, to the race of the country or the local population. It would be absurd. And those teams would reject it. Why? Because they would lose. Because they would lose. Because in athletics, you hire by ability, talent, expertise, um, stamina, any number of things that race has nothing to do with. What we conservatives wish we could export to the rest of our institutions in America, be they education or other corporations. Just as I said that, and I said, why do we do this? It's because in a way we take the NFL more seriously than we take, I don't know, you name it, than we take anything. But just as I said that, I got an example I didn't think I would get. came right over the transom today. United Airlines. Are you familiar with what United Airlines announced? A new policy regarding the hiring of pilots. I know what you're thinking, Bill. I know exactly what you're thinking. You're thinking what took them so long. Here are the company United Airlines posts. Over the next decade, United will train 5,000 pilots who will be guaranteed a job with United after they complete the requirements of the Aviat program. And our plan is for half of them to be women and people of color. Mirangoff asks, what if the plan is inconsistent with selecting the best qualified candidates for guaranteed jobs? If the airline then gives up or modifies its plan as it should, there is no problem. But if the company rejects best qualified white male candidates and adherence to its plan, it will be vulnerable to claims of race or sex discrimination. In addition, it will lower the quality of the pilot force. Hardly a trivial matter concerning the responsibilities of an airline pilot. Will anyone fly United again? Knowing that they're not going for talent but race? I have more to say about this and will. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. What took you so long? Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 past the hour is always one of my highlights because highlights of my day because I get to talk to one of the happiest, most kind and decent and smart men in the Valley of the Sun, John Dombrowski. John is the president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. Also, radio host here on uh, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. He hosts The Word on Wealth. I like having him as a guest. 
giving us our culture and economy update. Hi, John. Hello there. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. Thank you. Does anyone um, read tea leaves on markets when certain indexes go up and certain indexes go down? So on a day like today, S&P 5 goes up a bit. NASDAQ goes down a bit. Um, Dow Jones up a bit. uh, Russell uh, down a bit. Is 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 there anything to look at universally, universally with with those kinds of differences, or does one have to look at what's within those indexes making those differences? Yeah, I think uh, you know each each index does it, each index does have some um, overlay. I would say, in other words, some of the some stocks may be in more than one index. Uh-huh. Um, but generally speaking, uh, yes, each index has a difference to it. Right, the Dow Jones Industrial. Companies, 30 stocks, the S&P 500 are uh, 11 different sectors of the market. Uh, the Russell stocks are many sectors of the market, but a much smaller value of companies. Uh, and then the NASDAQ are a, a wide variety of thousands of companies in there, uh, basically technology. So there are differences between all of them. So based on certain economic issues or conditions, could have an effect on each index differently. Okay. Okay. So, but it was a flat. It kind of was a, just a kind of a flat day today. But some of the news, I think, investors what they were looking for or looking to hear, Seth, today was again uh, some of the Fed officials spoke and uh, the economic outlook. They were looking to see if they felt it was still similar to what we've been hearing all along from Fed Chair Powell, and what would be the response. Now thinking ahead that, hey, it sounds like the economy is going to explode and growth is going to be far greater than what many had predicted. Is that going to, you know, cause additional inflation above and beyond what the Fed believes? But uh, the thought is, is the uh, Governor Brainerd today noted uh, that they said, yes, it's a bright outlook, but uh, based on our feeling, there's still a lot more that this – economy needs to do before they believe it's going to be at a point to where they would feel confident or comfortable to begin uh, raising rates and tightening up on the monetary policy. So that's kind of a positive for the stock market. And that's where the worry of uh, hyperinflation would come in, given all the spending, right? Yeah. I mean, if people are starting to buy and buy and buy, right, then the cost of goods could go up because the demand is, is so great that there could be some shortages. And that's what we're seeing in real estate. Yeah. That's what we're seeing sure. in you know, certain commodities right now. Just, there's just such a high demand that it's creating an inflationary environment for certain areas of the economy. Uh, but the Fed still believes that this is not something in their eyes that's going to cause them to change their monetary policy uh, moving forward. You talk about the chairman of the Fed. We all know to listen to the chairman of the Fed closer then we ever listened to E.F. Hutton. We still have a chairman of the Fed. We don't have E.F. Hutton anymore, right? Are there other um, – I think I'm right about that. Are there other industry captains that people listen to uh, who come with the wisdom or the perceived wisdom of Solomon? Jamie Dimon, for example, of J.P. Morgan might be one. People want to know his views on that. Yeah. Are there others? Are there people – care what Bill Gates says about the economy or Warren Buffett? I don't really think Bill Gates has much, but Warren Buffett has proven, obviously, as an investor, Warren Buffett, a business owner and a creator, obviously, uh, but not necessarily an investor. Mm -hmm. 
but Warren Buffett, for sure, people uh, certainly want to hear what Warren Buffett has to say. He's been an extremely successful investor over decades. Um, you've got other people in government, uh, Janet Yellen now, former Fed Chair Janet Yellen, right? Yep. Uh, she, um, when she has to push, you know, what the president's policies are, she's pushing his his agenda, and people want to hear if she's on board with the president, if if they're going to continue to push the agenda of spending and taxing, and it seems like they are going to be doing that. But we're going to have to see how all of that falls out, though. And they look for a little daylight between the president and her as a sign. I gotcha. I gotcha. JD, thank you, sir. You bet. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Security LLC, a member of FINRA's Significant Investment Advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Check out our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, John. Much appreciated. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. 602-508-0960 is the number if you'd like to weigh in on anything we're talking about or something you would like us to be talking about. Jim is in Phoenix. Hello, Jim. Hi, Seth. I have a movie. So I had mentioned earlier, just so audience possibly tuning in, I had mentioned earlier that I can't think of very many movies, if any other than Jaws, that actually changed the culture. After you saw Jaws, you never looked at an ocean again. And I can't think of other movies that actually changed the way people think or behave. What do you got for me, Jim? Okay, maybe not quite on the order of Jaws, but uh, the movie Psycho. People never stepped into a shower again? Uh, Well, i got to tell you, I didn't for quite a long time. (laughs) Mind you, mind you. I might have been inculcated to that a little more than the average because I was dating a girl at the time who worked at a movie theater in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, I would be there to pick her up while that movie was showing. And, of course, I got there early, so I got to see that scene over and over again. Yeah. I want to tell you. Yeah. It was it, a while. It had an imprint on you. Uh, if there's any Alfred Hitchcock that had a impact I suppose it probably is Psycho, and and the interesting thing about it is um, maybe that scene is in particular the shower scene. Um, maybe maybe one of the most interesting things about the movie Psycho is there aren't that many memorable lines, but everyone can remember certain images from it. Can I? Can, can, I can't think of them. Is that was there a memorable? There is a line in there. I'm the only one who remembers it that I use. From time to time, it's when the cop pulls her over and says, if it don't gel, it ain't aspic. I use that line once in a while. No one knows what I'm talking about. But was there another Bingo. memorable line in that movie, Psycho? I don't think so. Bingo. I, 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 I was about to say, yeah, well, what about if it don't gel? Oh, you knew that line. You knew that line. I did. Good. I did. Well, like I said, I saw that movie over and over again. Yeah. How funny. So my producer, is this your suggestion, producer? My producer says fatal attraction might have made many men not ever think of cheating. Well, I think he's got a point there. Well, I would like to think that there were certain things before fatal attraction that might have led men to not want to cheat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, wouldn't we all? When when did that come out? 1988, 89, 90, something like that? I'd like to think before 1990... Our culture had moral instruction 
on uh, on not uh, on not uh, drinking double and seeing single. Well, there you go. Good luck with that, huh? <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, the birds did the, that, that do anything? I'm just running through my head of Alfred Hitchcock movies uh, with uh, uh, that one for me was just too zany. Yeah, it's I, too zany. I, I, no one, I, no one's going to get attacked by birds like that. Yeah, I couldn't buy into that. Yeah, one. yeah. Uh, but Psycho, maybe. Yeah, that shower for a while. It was temporary. People got over that one though, didn't they? Well, I suppose. So you're saying they, they might not have completely gotten over the... Uh, so, uh, well, I don't know, Jim. I'll just give you, I mean, I you know, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you what I think. I saw Jaws when I was probably eight, saw it in the theaters probably, I think. Uh, that sounds about right. And to this day, you know, if I jump in the ocean or go just get to the ocean for the first time on a summer vacation, I, there's a, there's, when I see the ocean, there's a scene that goes through my head. I'm not... From Jaws. I mean, I, 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 I still pause to this day. How many years later? Well, I suppose I would, too, if I ever got to the ocean. There you go. Uh, there you go. But I'm, I'm, I'm a desert rat, so okay. I probably won't have that test. Okay. <laughs> now everyone's going to be thinking about you when they get in the shower tonight, Jim. That's what you've done oh, here. Oh, dear. Yeah. God. Yeah. No, take uh, that back. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your cheer and call. I appreciate it. I made mention of something in the monologue I do want to uh, return to, and I'm unfortunately, I don't know that I have enough time to do it right here, but it had to do with Tucker Carlson's uh, interview with Asa Hutchison last night. He's the uh, governor of Arkansas on uh, Hutchinson vetoing a bill, uh, vetoing a bill that uh, would prevent uh, prevent uh, ch- uh, doctors from doing gender hormone treatment and puberty blockers or surgery to anyone under the age of 18. Um, And Hutchinson was making what I think is a misplaced, inapt, and in some respects novel argument about what conservatism is. Hutchinson is a Republican, and uh, one wonders why he would veto something like that. Tucker was trying to make the point that he probably heard from a lot of outside corporate interests that they were going to do to his state what uh, is being done to Georgia right now, I suppose, making it a pariah state if he signed this legislation. This is not an issue conservatives should have Stockholm Syndrome on like Hutchinson does. We're going to get into this in a little bit. This is not an issue conservatives should be on the defensive about. It should not be hard to argue two things here. Two things, whether you're a conservative or whether you're not, quite frankly. It should not be hard to argue that a child should not make dramatic and a parent should not make dramatic, life-altering, physical, gender-changing decisions that can be permanent to anyone under the age of 18. That should not be a hard case to make. This is not giving a child a beer. This is not letting a child get a tattoo at the age of 12. This is something far different than that. That will, I believe, lead over time, and I say I believe because we haven't had enough time with this experiment on humanity, this will lead, I believe, these kinds of decisions will believe will lead, I believe, 
to something far worse than gender dysphoria in a person's out, out, out years after the age of 18. You think about what it means to have a girl remove her female body parts or a boy his below the age of 18 because he's dysphoric under the age of 18 before his or her brain is even done developing, okay? Before his or her brain is even done developing. This should not be a hard case to make. Who was the comedian who said, you know, we're supposed to listen to children, but are you kidding me? Have you ever listened to some of their ideas, <laughs> you know, but we're going to take them seriously about this sort of thing, that they shouldn't be a boy, they should be a girl, they shouldn't be a girl, they should be a boy. That's issue one. Issue two I tried to get at in my monologue was the fa fallaciousness of Asa Hutchinson's argument, which I think some stupid aide probably fed him, which was, well, we as conservatives don't want the government to interfere between the doctor-patient relationship. Now we're making that argument? All of a sudden now? On this? I'll say something about that when we come back to Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. I'm going to get into the Hutchinson-Carlson debate um, in a bit more in the next hour. And it's not really a Hutchinson-Carlson debate. It's a Hutchinson-conservative debate. When Asa Hutchinson says that he banned a piece of – he vetoed a piece of legislation that would ban transgender procedures for minors, that he did so because his view of conservatism – means that the government should not interfere between the patient and doctor. Um, it, it's a misunderstanding of conservatism. It's certainly a misunderstanding of history, too. Let's understand where these claims to libertarianism come in and how, as the church lady may have once said, how convenient they can be. Um, the time to argue for keeping the government out of otherwise private, otherwise personal, otherwise interpersonal decisions is not once it's already been put there unless you want to eliminate it altogether. So in other words, we have had the government involved in the patient-doctor relationship for a long, long time on things as arguably and far less arguably important to society as changing a child's gender. We have had the government in between the doctor and the patient on abortion. We have had the government in between the doctor and the patient uh, when it comes to FDA and medicines that can be prescribed. Hell, we have put the doctor, we have put the government in between the doctor and the patient when it comes to the elderly and the poor. Government is well involved in the medical field right now, ask any doctor. Government is well already involved. The time to have accepted the argument that government shouldn't be involved here, and I don't want it as involved as it is, was when Barry Goldwater was making it in the 60s, when he was talking about the more the government comes in, the less freedom we are going to have and the more expensive it's going to be for all. But don't come making that argument when we're trying to erect guardrails 
and safety precautions for the public good once the government is already in that relationship. And don't tell me the government is not involved in the relationship between the child and the parent and the child and society. Of course it is. And if you disbelieve me, put a bruise on a child's eye and you tell me how quickly the government stays out of your business. Don't. Obviously, don't. But you take my point. A lot more coming up, including David Schweiker, right away. We'll be right back.